We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello listeners, you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. This week we're going to be talking to you about fitness and I'd like to remind you that the show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so go to edgeradio.org.au for more information about what they're doing. And I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. Today we are on Lutruwita, Tasmania, and I pay my respects to the Palawa people. On behalf of everyone, I also pay my respects to the traditional owners of where you are listening um, and pay my respects to elders past and present. So today we're going to be talking about fitness and heart health. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm your weekly host and I'm joined by two friends, colleagues and experts, Dr. Rachel Climey and Dr. Martin Schultz. So you may be thinking that you kind of know what fitness is because we all inherently kind of know what fitness is, but have you ever thought about how is fitness related to my heart health? Why is it actually that important when it's so hard to do things that make me fit? But I think generally in the public or um, even if you've never thought about actually describing what fitness is, you inherently kind of have an idea of what it means to be fit or to look at someone and think, oh yeah, they look lean and able to do things that require physical exertion. They're a pretty fit person. So why is it important and how do we actually know if someone is really and truly fit? So today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Rachel Climey, who is an exercise physiologist and researcher at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research, who focuses on the role of fitness for our heart health. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Nate. I'm wondering, can you tell me what actually is fitness and how is it measured? So fitness is a measure of our functional capacity, so how easily we can do normal daily activities. Generally, we measure it. The gold standard way to measure it is in a laboratory or in a clinic um, where we get someone to do a VO2 max test. So this is a max exercise test, generally done on an exercise bike or a treadmill. And we place a a gas analyzer um, on the face of the participant and we measure how much oxygen they're taking in and how well their body's using it during that max test. And that gives us an indication of their fitness. It's really interesting, Rachel. So... When do we measure fitness in that way that you've just described? So we generally measure fitness like that in athletes um, to understand how fit they are. Um, But we can also measure it in clinical populations um, because we know that fitness is one of the strongest predictors for our future risk of heart disease or early death. So understanding how how fit someone is gives us an indication of that. Um, So the fitter you are, the less likely you are to suffer from a cardiac event or to die prematurely. That's uh, awesome, Rachel. But so if it's quite important, how are fitness and heart health actually linked? So in order for someone to get fit, um, they need to be engaging in um, high levels of physical activity or exercise. And by doing this, we are stressing our cardiorespiratory system. So we're causing our heart and our lungs to work um, in response to the exercise. And this keeps them functioning at a healthy level um, and keeps us um, nice and healthy. So a little bit of stress is good for the system, it seems. So, But you've mentioned there that we can do either physical activity or exercise to make ourselves more fit. What's the difference? So physical activity is defined as any bodily movement um, generated by c- the contraction of our skeletal muscles, which results in energy expenditure. 
And exercise is a subset of physical activity. So generally exercise is planned, uh, structured and repetitive with the end goal of trying to increase fitness. Okay, so like physical activity is anytime I move, but I'm just doing that, going about my daily life. But exercise is sometimes like I'm going to plan to go and do this thing probably going to make me fitter. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Okay, well, in just a moment, we'll be talking to our other expert guest, Dr. Martin Schultz, about how exercise could tell us more about our health than meets the eye. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about fitness and heart health. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Climey and Dr. Martin Schultz from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research. So in the first section, we were talking about what is fitness and how is it linked to our heart and our health. And Rachel was telling us that fitness essentially indicates how well we can go about our functions and daily life, move our bodies, and we coincidentally get fitter by moving our bodies which is really interesting but what's also important is what does our fitness or the way that our body responds to exercise tell us about our health and to answer these questions I'm joined by Dr. Martin Schultz an exercise physiologist and senior researcher at Menzies Institute for Medical Research so Marty your work has focused on how blood pressure which is a marker of heart health changes in response to exercise so that's either while we're exercising or just after we've finished exercising. Why would it be important for us to ever think about how our blood pressure responds to exercise? Uh, thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And um, if we think about how blood pressure is normally measured, you might be seated. Uh, you might have had some rest. Uh, it's a quiet, stable environment. Your doctor might come and measure your blood pressure. Um, and that gives us a bit of an indication of, or it's an estimate of, of your pressure pressure load that you have on your heart or your heart health um, across in that moment. But um, what it actually doesn't give is uh, a good indication of how your heart health responds to activities of daily living. So most of us don't just sit still uh, and silent um, all day. We are moving about. And so by measuring our blood pressure in response to activity, activities of daily living, such as light to moderate intensity of exercise, um, we are able to get a bit more of a, a bigger picture as to how your heart is uh, yeah, response to those activities. Okay, so our listeners who like religiously listen might remember an episode with Professor James Sharman and Dr. Dean Piconi where we talked about all the different ways you can measure blood pressure, what blood pressure is and how it can actually be kind of difficult to get an accurate blood pressure measurement. So what you're saying is if we take someone out of the clinical setting where they're seated for ideally like five minutes and we take lots of measurements that but if we get them to walk or move around a little bit that that might actually tell us how their blood pressure responds to normal activity but also stress which could be indicative of like how well their heart's performing is that what you mean yes yep okay so you're looking at this in more in more detail to see if we can actually use this in clinical practice can you tell us a little bit about the research you're undertaking to understand the relationship between how our blood pressure responds to exercise and our heart health 
Yeah, so what we've uh, what we found is is that when your uh, your blood pressure normally does increase when we exercise and when we begin exercising, but um, in some individuals, uh, irrespective of what your blood pressure level is when you're resting, um, you can have this abnormal increase or what we call an exaggerated blood pressure response to exercise. Um, and our research has shown that this might be associated with, uh, I, I guess, increased cardiovascular disease risk, um, but also it it can be an indication of uh, an underlying blood pressure abnormality that wasn't detected by if we were to just measure it at rest. So that sounds pretty important. So everyone's blood pressure increases when they start to exercise or are moving around when we measure it. But those whose blood pressure elevates more than what you'd expect somebody to are actually at a higher risk of a heart attack or a stroke or cardiovascular disease. So that sounds pretty important. But how have you gone about getting information around this or even looking at that. Surely we're not measuring blood pressure every time somebody's exercising. What we've done is we've looked at uh, a great number of, of clinical tests, um, of exercise testing, which is performed uh, in hospitals and exercise physiology clinics around the, the country, around the world. Um, there's many of these tests that are undertaken every year and, and blood pressure measurement during these exercise tests is, these are clinical tests. Uh, blood pressure measurement is a, a standard component of that. Yeah, so we've extracted a, a large amount of clinical data to be able to look at outcomes related to those those clinical tests. So that's really interesting, Marty. What you're saying is that all around Australia and the world, lots of people have exercise tests done as routine clinical practice, and as part of that, they measure blood pressure. But what you were saying is we don't actually know what that blood pressure response to exercise means if it's normal or abnormal. We're not using that in any way. And you've extracted all that data from the tests that are already done, and you're looking at how that relates to somebody's health. What would be the next steps when, so you've known now that it is important, what does all this clinical information actually tell you and what can you do with it? Yeah, so what we're trying to establish at the moment is an exact threshold of blood pressure in response to exercise that would be indicative of that increased cardiovascular disease risk. So once we've defined that threshold, which we're able to do with the, the data that we've extracted, um, it's to try and understand how if someone, an individual is completing one of these tests, if their blood pressure goes beyond that threshold, how might that change how we, we care for them? How might it impact on their cardiovascular health and treatment going forward? And so that's what we're hoping to be able to achieve. That's really interesting. I think it demonstrates the power of like modern uh, medical, how modern inf medical information is collected that you know you can extract all this information that's already there of everybody who's already undergone this test and their blood pressure has already been measured and then we'll know if they've gone to hospital and had a heart attack or a stroke so you have that clinical data and it's going to tell you whether or not they are at actually high risk and you'll find your thresholds but what do you do with it then after that so you say you might identify clinical pathways but do you definitively know that that threshold is an important thing or an important red flag for us to look at? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I, I suppose um, we need to first be able to identify what is considered abnormal. And so defining a threshold will be uh, an indication for those supervising those exercise tests that, okay, we need to follow this person up for their to check on their blood pressure and their heart health to, to understand, um, yeah, how, how they need to have... Change. intervention or um, appropriate follow-up care yeah okay Marty that sounds like really interesting and promising that you're using this data that's already available to identify if there's a threshold that might be meaningful but how does this response of our blood pressure to exercise relate to fitness and how fit we are because it kind of seems a little bit counterintuitive that our blood pressure would increase and that that could even be a bad thing yeah so I mean certainly it's um 
yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that um, exercise is bad and that we shouldn't go exercise because uh, you know it, it might increase our blood pressure and therefore put us at increased risk. It's certainly not the case. The fitter we are, the uh, the better our blood pressure response to exercise, and it's overall uh, a better indicator of, of cardiovascular health. That's really interesting, Marty. So, what about if my blood pressure response to exercise isn't normal, but then I get fitter or I start doing more exercise? Like you're saying, this doesn't mean exercise is bad. So I'm like, okay. I'm going to actually go out and exercise more. Would that improve how my blood pressure responds to exercise in the future? Um, likely, yes, um, because we know that improvements in fitness uh, translate to improvements in, in blood pressure. So a lower blood pressure, the fitter you are. Okay, great. And that nicely leads us into our next section where we'll be talking about how everyone can go about improving our fitness and our heart health. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about fitness and heart health. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Rachel Climey and Dr. Martin Schultz, as our expert guests today from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research. So we've talked about what fitness is and why it's linked to our heart health. And then we learned about Marty's really interesting study that's looking at how blood pressure responds to exercise and that it may be a useful indicator of heart health that we can use to improve clinical practice potentially. Jury's still out and he's doing lots of work to find out how we would do that. So I think all that is left is really the big elephant in the room of how do we get fit and what do we do, you know, in the interim now that we're all like empowered and feeling like, yeah, I want to get back on the wagon. So Rachel, can you give us an overview of like how Australians are currently performing in terms of being fit and healthy and active and meeting exercise guideline recommendations? Yes, Neve. So pretty poorly, actually. We know that uh, 55% of Australian adults aren't meeting the current physical activity recommendations. Um, an alarming 92% of adolescents and 74% of children are not meeting the recommendations. So this is um, quite significant given that we know how beneficial physical activity and exercise is for our heart health, but also um, our um, physical health and also our mental health. So most adults aren't reaching the guidelines. What are the guidelines? Are they just like super unattainable and I've got to be like exercising all day, every day? No, not at all. So the um, current Australian guidelines um, recommend that adults engage in approximately 30 minutes a day of moderate intensity activity. So this is an intensity where you're huffing and puffing, but you can still maintain a, a brief conversation with the person exercising beside you. Um, if you're engaging in vigorous intensity exercise where you can't maintain that conversation, then um, the recommendations suggests that you engage in uh, a lower amount of exercise. So really trying to do 30 minutes a day is not um, that cumbersome, uh, I believe. Yeah, so 30 minutes a day sounds relatively achievable, but to be honest, I'm probably the type of person that would rather just do that uh, in three larger sessions over the week. So do they have to be done 30 minutes a day or is it over the course of a week? Yeah, no, not necessarily. It can certainly be done over the course of a week. And even if you can't do 30 minutes at a time, by doing just 10 minutes at a time, three times a day is um, perfectly fine. It's all um, beneficial for our heart health and physical health. Um, it's certainly better than doing no activity at all. That's really interesting about the 10 minutes a day because it's the moderate intensity. Sometimes I find you know, it takes me 10 minutes to work up to the point of huffing and puffing and breaking a sweat. But um, I think, Marty, you and I have often talked about a study that we found really interesting that 
just doing something in that 10 minutes is actually really beneficial. So what would be your advice to some of the people that aren't meeting the guideline recommendations about getting out there and getting active? Yeah, I think what's really great about um, exercising or physical activity is, is that uh, anything is better than nothing. And um, what certain studies have shown, there's been a number of them that have shown it, that um, we get the greatest improvement in, in cardiovascular health or a reduction in mortality outcomes, um, risk of death, um, just from moving from doing nothing to something. That's great, Mari, that you've pointed out that for those of us moving from being completely sedentary or doing no activity, we get the biggest gain to moving to being active. And even more than those that are doing like loads and loads of activity, we actually have better gains to just doing something. Rachel, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, if I'm active when I'm a student or when I'm really young and then I'm more sedentary as I get older, have my young wise days of being really, really active saved me from all future risk or, you know, also if I wasn't very active as a child, am I at higher risk um, or is there a benefit to me still just getting active now? How does it change across the life Yes, yeah, so there's certainly a benefit to getting active now. Um, as Marty said, you know, doing any activity is certainly better than doing none and it doesn't matter when you start, just doing some is, is great. Um, we do know though that people who are active as students, you know, around the age of 18 or as a uni student, for example, but then they um, move into a sedentary job and they um, become quite sedentary themselves, they're still at the same risk of developing high blood pressure at the age of 45 as someone who hasn't been active throughout their childhood and adolescence. So yeah, the message is, you know, we need to be active and it's important to be active all throughout the life course. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think there's definitely data out there that so that supports that any stage of your life moving from that doing nothing to something is beneficial, even in comparison to those that were fit and active all throughout life. If you then progress to doing something and become active, you're actually becoming protective to those that have always been fit. So it's never too late. But is there any type of activity that's the best for somebody to do? Or is it just whatever you keep up? So it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're oh. wanting to increase your cardiorespiratory fitness, then um, we would suggest engaging in uh, aerobic activity. So this is a type of activity such as walking, running or swimming. Dancing. Um, dancing, anything like that, yes, to increase your um, cardiorespiratory fitness. I think um, it's important to do what you find fun and enjoyable and um, something that you, you can sustain as well. Um, Okay, so yeah. do is, is, just out of interest, do you know if there's any data that indicates doing like a social-based sport improves like how often you exercise or is it literally just individual dependent, do what works for you? So, you know, if that's about walking by yourself, do that. If it's getting a pet, that's a good excuse. Um, you know, is there any evidence about that for health behaviour change or is it just a case of the evidence shows do what you enjoy? I'm not sure of the evidence about that in particular, Neve, but um, we do know that people are more likely to stick at their exercise program if they are enjoying it. So whatever it may be, dancing, walking the dog, going to the gym, whatever works for you and you can um, continue to do it is going to be beneficial. Yeah. So some people are morning exercises and that's great and other people can't exercise in the morning. So if you're one of those people, don't try exercising in the morning because you're not going to stick at it. You need to work out what works for you. Um, so that you can maintain a, a, a good uh, exercise routine. 
Yeah, definitely. I also think it's like, obviously this isn't like evidence-based, but don't be hard on yourself when you're starting. Like last year I had a really bad injury. So when I started back at the gym, it was moderate to vigorous intensity, just walking for 15 minutes on a treadmill. So I think starting somewhere is the main message we're trying to say here. Do you know of any resources that people could go to, like maybe the Heart Foundation website? Or I think I saw some spiffy videos of you, Rachel, last year where you were promoting physical activity during lockdown. So is there any resources that we could direct people to, like the Heart Foundation website? Yeah, the Heart Foundation website, definitely. And the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute, where I was working last year, um, developed some um, home programs. So they can be downloaded from the website. And these are um, activities that you can do in the comfort of your own living room. Um, You don't need expensive weights or anything like that. You can just use cans of soup or bottles of water to, to lift and increase your muscle mass and That's really great, Rachel, that those resources are freely available. So, Marty, what about people who might be really apprehensive or have other, like, health conditions and they're not sure about how they should go about starting being more active? Yeah, so if anyone's unsure about how to go about initiating an exercise uh, program, um, the experts in prescribing exercise in in those with health conditions or even just to provide advice on how to best get started for someone who's not sure – um, is our exercise physiologists, uh, accredited exercise physiologists with Exercise and Sports Science Australia um, are able to, to help out in that regard. How would somebody go about finding one of those? Is it just to look up the ones in your local area or do you have to get a doctor referral? You can get a doctor's referral. Um, otherwise, you can uh, search on the website uh, Exercise and Sports Science Australia and they will, they will find they have on there uh, details of all the exercise physiologists in your area. Great. So listeners, if you do get inspired from this episode and start working out from home, we'd love to see your pictures or uh, some feedback on social media about that. I remember last year during lockdown in the UK, um, Joe Wicks went viral for doing PE with Joe at lunchtimes where school children and parents could tune in. And all of a sudden, you know, there were like two or three million people a day tuning in and talk about getting a nation fit during the time where you'd expect them to be least fit of all. So I think that's it for now. Thanks so much to my expert guests, Dr. Martin Schultz and Dr. Rachel Climey. I hope you've enjoyed the show and uh, we're going to post a link to those uh, resources that we mentioned about the Heart Foundation and from the baker that Rachel produced last year in collaboration with other people, I'm sure. Um, So that's it for now. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. And please do get in touch with us on social media if you end up uh, having any questions or doing some physical activity. Thanks. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.
You are listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined with all of my co-hosts in the studio. So our show, as if you're a current listener, you would know, aims to bring you fun, factual, interesting science, technology, engineering, or maths STEM content from Tasmania. And each week we engage with local experts. But what we also don't tend to touch too much is that we, we are a bit of a panel of experts ourselves. So this week is all about our International Women's Day programs. We're going to do a three-part series. And what better way than to show you the awesome work that our very own team of hosts are doing. So let's get started with Kelsey. So Kelsey, who are you? Well, my name's Kelsey Pickard. Um, I'm originally from New Zealand. Cool. Yeah. Um, I've been in Australia for probably seven and a half years now, but Tassie for two years. That's awesome. And what kind of science do you study? Plant science, plant genetics. That's um, cool. When did you decide that you wanted to do plant science yeah um it was probably well it was my first year of uni um I actually wanted to be a genetic counsellor which works with humans um and reproductive issues um but then I had to take one subject that was a plant science subject just to make up the points and since that subject I've changed my whole focus of science to plant science I loved it more than any other subject I've had um and yeah I've since been focusing all my science efforts on plants. Is there anything in particular you like about plants? Like you said that you just loved it way more than the other stuff. Was there a particular thing that you loved more than it or did you just find it more interesting? Oh, um, I guess it's something I never really thought about before actually being taught it, that plants are pretty fascinating, how they can take sunlight energy and water and produce um, chemical energy grow from basically what we would assume is nothing. Um, I think they're super cool. They are pretty cool. And what are you currently doing in the realm of science, technology, engineering and maths? So at the moment I'm working at the University of Tasmania in the natural sciences department. Um, so I am a PhD student and my research project is focusing on what makes plants flower, how they can measure the day length and the temperature to decide when to flower and basically how we can manipulate that to get a higher yield. So more flowers, more seed, more food. And why is it important for us to look at that? Well, I mean, the global population is increasing hugely and we need to be able to feed the world and we need to be able to adapt our plants to a changing climate. So um, less water resources, um, less predictable seasons and things like that. Awesome. Okay, so next we'll go to our resident tech expert, Meredith. Please introduce yourself. Who are you and where you're from? Uh, Tasmania, moved around a bit, came back to Tasmania. I'm from ICT or the Information Communication and Technology field of STEM. Awesome. Mm. And when did you decide that you wanted to get into ICT? A uh, long story. Um, playing games as a kid. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, but it, it was, um, I actually wanted to be an archaeologist. Came here, found there was no archaeology. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I studied ancient history. And then through that, I found out that um, I liked digital history, which is a little bit of. Um, a little bit of everything. It's how to present information, archaeology information and, and history information digitally. And um, that led me into ICT. That's very cool and a little bit left field. Yeah. Can you explain how a bush regenerates after a fire? Yeah, so it, it depends on the species. But if we think about the plants, then a lot of the the plants, particularly the big trees with thick bark, they might actually survive the fire. So the bark can protect 
the trees, the leaves might all be burnt off, but then um, there are dormant buds either under the bark or down in the roots that will reshoot after the fire. And so some of the some of the bigger trees and some of the shrubs might actually be able to survive, but others are going to be killed. And then for the ones that might be killed, there are different processes that will enable um, a new cohort of plants to sort of come up um, and regenerate following the fire. 